Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. It is 2021. This is one of the first interviews I am doing for 2021. And in 2021, uh, I've been thinking about launching this new segment called Aspiring Intellectuals that is under the bigger umbrella of Policy Punchline. We will interview philosophers and ethicists and people from all kinds of backgrounds and, and scientists kind of talking about some of the most uh, fundamental issues confronting our society and not just uh, narrowly defined as policy. And today I'm very uh, honored and glad to, to welcome a, a very thoughtful philosopher and thinker. His name is Ewan uh, Kingston. He is a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton Environmental Institute and the University Center of Human Values. He works in the intersection of political philosophy, business ethics and environmental ethics. I met him uh, at one of my uh, recent philosophy seminars. He came over to discuss his very interesting essay on this term called joy guzzling, which we will soon uh, dive into. And, and I thought it would be great to have just a far reaching, let's see where this take us kind of conversation about philosophy, environment, uh, ethics. So uh, Dr. Kingston, thank you so much for, for joining me. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for that very kind introduction. Uh, I, I should say Princeton Environmental Institute has just changed its name to High Meadows Environmental Institute um, to, to fit in with some uh, kind donations and stuff like that. So I now have a new, a new name, but we do the same thing. Uh, for, for listeners who are listening on, on iTunes or Spotify, they might not see this, but we are we both have our Zoom background as uh, uh, paintings. I, I have some uh, Van Gogh and Monet and Dr. Kingston has some uh, De Chirico. So we have some, some paintings in the background that you can see on our YouTube video, but uh, uh, it's a smartsy kind of intellectual vibe, I guess. <laughs> uh, sh shall we dive in, Dr. Kingston, about joy guzzling, this very big, interesting term that okay. I, I bet probably 99% of our listeners have <laughs> never heard of this term. I mean, I didn't used to hear about it. Would you mind starting off by, by telling us what this term means? Perhaps. Okay, yeah, so it's a, a portmanteau mashup of two words, uh, joyriding, not in the criminal sense, but just in the sense of going for a drive for fun. And then uh, it's guzzling because you're not doing it in a, uh, you know, new uh, electric vehicle that's charged with renewable energy, you're, you're burning fossil fuels to do it, you're, you're joyriding in a gas guzzler, so you're joy guzzling. And yeah, we, we can talk about the reason why this is an important example, if you want. So basically, you, you wrote this uh, philosoph philosophical journal article with, with, with uh, Walter Sinan Armstrong, uh, who is a very famous philosopher as well. And, and you're saying, uh, you're basically making certain arguments about joy guzzling this concept. And um, in, in some sense, we can understand joy guzzling as basically carbon emissions or, or polluting the environment. In, in a way that is not necessary or just for the personal pleasure. Okay, can we broadly understand that term in that way? Yeah, we, we wanted to uh, defend the acts that individuals do uh, that might emit, you know, significant amount of uh, greenhouse gases, uh, but they don't have a very strong moral reason to do so. So you're not emitting these gases to go and see your, you know, your grandma who's on her deathbed or something like that. Like, it, it seems pretty easy to justify that kind of case. So we wanted to make things hard for ourselves and say, can we show that uh, it's not wrong to go joy guzzling, for instance, or doing all sorts of other things that um, have high greenhouse gas emissions, 
uh, from a personal standpoint. So, so, so in other words, if I uh, and my mom or my dad go on a Sunday joy ride to go bird watching or go see something just for the fun of it, this would be considered as joy guzzle under this definition. Um, yeah, I mean, even there, you might say, well, you know, you're interacting with the natural world and there might be some, some important moral value there. But if you're, you know, and, and our original example is like, you just like the feeling of the wind in your hair and you like the, the power yeah. of, the, of the car. But it's, it's not important, you know, to a great extent, like exactly uh, what counts as joy guzzling, but just the, the, the broader question that we're interested in is, you know, is it uh, morally wrong? Is there a moral requirement to refrain from doing such acts? Because there is a wide consensus, let's say that climate change is real and individuals contribute to carbon emissions, uh, but there are many people who say carbon emissions are harmful on an aggregate level, uh, but individual emissions, you can, it is very hard to pin down the responsibility. Meaning if I go on a Sunday joy ride, like you said, how does that tiny bit of emission exactly harm the earth and and that's kind of the argument you make and and uh, you're saying that individual responsibility ought to only kick in when it comes to uh, in an aggregate way in an emergent way and, and such and so on so I, I guess would you mind walking us through the, the broader framework of your essay and uh, so some of the arguments you hope to to argue against sure yeah so you used a really interesting word there um which is contribute uh it's an interesting word because it could mean contribute in a causal way, or it could mean contribute sort of just being part of a group that has a causal impact. So let, let, let's have a look at that. So uh, to start off with, my emissions, uh, you know, we, we could say, you know, my, my annual emissions might be something like, you know, 20 tons. Uh, and humanity's emissions are on the order of, of gigatons. So there's a, a, a huge difference in scale there. And all the climate science uh, is looking at what is the impact of these gigaton level additions to the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And they say, rightly, that uh, this has a, a huge and, and worrying impact and humanity should you know, definitely do something about this. Now, uh, a lot of people would then say, okay, so, you know, humanity is all of us and the responsibility to do something devolves to, to sort of all of us. And maybe the harm of these emissions that are happening, the, the extreme weather and the expansion of disease raises, ranges and the sea level rises um, and the food insecurity uh, and the drowning of, uh, certain low-lying uh, islands and stuff like that, you know, all of this is sort of uh, divided among each of us that emit or emit above a certain level or something like that. So you can kind of sort of take the whole problem and then just chop it up like in an ar arithmetic uh, problem. Uh, but this is perhaps to, to commit you know, to, to, to simply go from, you know, the group is causing a problem to therefore each individual is causing a part of that problem is to, in our view, sort of commit a kind of fallacy of division, right? So you could think about it in terms of um, uh, 
you know, when, when one country goes to, to war against another country, right? Uh, you can think of the country as a group of individuals, but the responsibility, it's not like each individual has a responsibility for one particular part of that war. Um, you don't always just divide some effect um, by the uh, number of people in the group that's causing the effect. Uh, especially when it seems like, uh, as you know, the title of some articles have it, my emissions make no difference, right? It, if we want to look at what's actually physically happening when I'm emitting uh, my 20 tons of CO2 in a year, it's uh, very hard to tell a story where that is going to actually make a difference to someone's life, whether I emit that 20 tons or not. It, it comes down to, at the most, a matter of well, it might make, you know, you might be able to tell a story where there's, there's uh, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is, you know, uh, a tiny fraction, a, a, a billionth or a trillionth, you know, more, uh, part, uh, sorry, it's a part per trillion rather than a part per, per million in the atmosphere there. So there's a tiny change in concentration, but whether that transmits into a change in temperature, um, depends on you know what the photons are doing and we're down to another level and then whether that changes the, the, the sort of the key point is whether that changes any effects on the ground and any actual floods actual uh droughts you know the things that impact people's lives it starts to sort of boggle the mind how uh, uh, such a small fraction of a contribution could actually make a causal difference so if there's not a causal difference, then things get a little bit tricky. And, and I suppose, uh, well, you also note this part of emergent property, which is that climate change is emergent in, in the way that uh, like individual molecules of oil do not cause parts of the uh, sensations of sliminess or, or the yellowish color. Only when the individual molecules get together they make up the sort of the bigger sort of oil and then therefore the oil has this property of sliminess or yellowish color. So, so in that sense, individual molecules of greenhouse gas do not cause a part of the climate change damages and only when they get together, they do. And, and it's very hard to pin down the individual contribution. That, that's another argument that you basically talk about. Yeah, so, so uh, I wanna be cautious about emergence because emergence is a, is a complex and, and difficult subject. And, uh, you know, there's, there's different views on sort of how common it is in the world. Um, but at least, as you say, there seem to be sort of some cases like, you know, the, the, the properties of oil um, where uh, they're not emerging from the molecular level. So it seems like there's, there are different scales and, and phenomena maybe belong to certain scales. And I've been arguing and kind of these last few minutes that the phenomena of climate change is best viewed at the planetary scale. Uh, so in that case, you could say that, that it does emerge. Now I'm, you know, I'm not a metaphysician, so I don't want to sort of hang my hat on this idea. Um, but at least I think uh, we don't want to uh, assume that it's definitely not emergent. Um, and to me, I'd be interested to sort of hear from climate scientists uh, exactly uh, what they think about this idea that with how sensitive the climate is to these minute, you know, like uh, several ton uh, of CO2 level of changes. 
but it, it's not a very important question. They've got more important things to do, you know, like figure out <laughs> exactly what the feedback loops are and stuff like this, rather than look at these minute level changes, which are the ones that are interesting to moral philosophers who are interested in the individual level. So Dr. Kingston, I guess one important thing to clarify for our listeners is that uh, are you a believer of climate change? Of course, yeah. Uh, of course, I, I, yes. That, that's the difficulty when sort of talking yeah. about this stuff is, is uh, it's, there's almost a sense in which um, talking about the complexity is something that, of, yeah. of, of the climate is something that has yeah. a, a history in terms of uh, climate denial. But I think the complexity when it comes down to, to individual changes, I think one can challenge that without challenging the, the scientific orthodoxy on, on but, climate change. But are you denying individual responsibility when it comes to climate change? Well, again, res responsibility is, is one of these interesting terms. So uh, often it's used in moral philosophy looking in a backward direction. So, you know, uh, Jones died was Smith responsible for Jones's death, right? So that's a kind of backward looking, you know, what we are responsible for um, in terms of events that happened and sort of, and pinning blame. And then when it comes to climate change, people sometimes want to say, well, individuals are responsible for the effects of their own emissions. So that's responsibility looking forward. And that's a slightly different issue. Um, especially since the effects of climate change are going to depend on how, how countries adapt to climate change. So it's not like there's some, some harm in the future that's, uh, that's there that we can now attribute to an individual because it, it hasn't happened yet. So it's, an, it's a forward-looking kind of responsibility and it's not a term that we use in the paper. Um, I think it's something that, that, that could be developed. Sometimes people mean by responsibility, they mean sort of like a weak, you know, a weak duty. You've got a weak duty to reduce your emissions. And sometimes that means something different. So um, I'm not exactly sure uh, where we would want to go when talking about responsibility, but our claim is, is just simply that uh, it's not violating a moral obligation. Uh, how, how do you define moral obligation then, I, I think? Hoping you'd ask that. <laughs> so if you violate a moral obligation, then you're liable to a negative sanction. And it can be a legal sanction. Um, it could be a social sanction. Um, or it could be internal. You could be liable to feeling guilt or shame. Uh, so violating obligations is something that makes one liable to one of these negative sanctions. And so we're saying, when we're saying you don't violate a moral obligation, what I take us as saying is, uh, it's not appropriate uh, to feel guilt and uh, it's not appropriate for others to shame you for a high carbon footprint. And that's pretty much it. Um, there's, there's, there's a whole sort of range of other things we can say about the moral status of, of high carbon emitting acts. Um, but we just want to say, don't go so far as calling them wrong. Isn't this a, a classic collective action problem in some sense? If you don't see it as your responsibility to uh, 
stop emitting or cutting down as much carbon emissions as possible than someone else isn't incentivized to. And, uh, and I think that gets back to the question, which is do individual actions really matter when it comes to solving climate change? Right. And uh, I think you were saying that individuals' actions might not matter. Yeah, so, I mean, there's all sorts of different kinds of actions. So emitting actions, uh, I think from, from the individual perspective, even matter, I mean, matter is an interesting thing. Like they might matter in the way that it gives meaning to my life to live a low carbon life. So in that way, it matters for sure. Um, but with regard to the collective action problem, it seems that, you know, and this, you might know the literature better than me on this, but from what I understand, uh, one kind of basic rule of, of social dilemmas, collective action problems, um, is that the more players you get, the harder it is to coordinate, coordinate and get the social optical, socially optical, socially optimal outcome, right? Yes, yes. Um, and we're talking about a collective action problem with, if we're thinking of individuals, you know, billions, billions. and billions of, of players. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, the, the classic response of having uh, state responses and changing the incentives and changing the payoffs seems to be the kind of the way to go. You can't expect this coordination to sort of just arrive uh, in, a, in a kind of bottom-up way that everyone's going to see that we'll all be better off if we uh, choose not to joy guzzle so everybody stops joy guzzling. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be that kind of problem that lends itself well to kind of spontaneous cooperative solution. Um, so that's why I end up talking a lot about regulation um, and uh, regulation and governance, basically. Uh, so we, we can start to talk about that. Um, yeah. I, I, I guess you're making a very specific kind of argument, which is that yes, climate change matters. Uh, individual uh, individual emissions eventually total up to be this aggregate emission that harms Earth. However, it would be very different to say your joy guzzling activity, meaning your Sunday joy ride, where you buying some potato chips in the in the market that uh, cause some carbon emission. Whether that activity itself um, should be morally reprehensible or, or result in some kind of punishment in you. And, uh, and I think you further make some arguments about how it's a distraction because if we put too much more requirement on individuals and, uh, and on individual responsibility, it may actually distract us from uh, devoting it to political actions or regulations, which you believe are much more effective ways of solving climate change and also um, really the key way and, and not in terms of um, and we shouldn't be bogged down by by this kind of individual don't go Sunday dry ride argument yeah so that that's a very nice summary um, I'm just trying to think what I want to add to it <laughs> I guess uh, in terms of the distraction so it kind of starts from thinking that uh The overall sort of proportion of the population uh, that m might be sort of most committed to 
holding uh, political actors sort of feet to the fire on their rhetoric. Because right now we have, you know, quite a lot of rhetoric about how uh, we need to reach net zero emissions in this country, at least coming from, you know, the Democrat side. Um, and then it's going to take some sort of hard, hard work to get there. And uh, so there's a lot of work for individual citizens to do, um, to do their civic duty. And this is something that pretty much everyone in the debate agrees with those who say, yeah, joy guzzling is wrong. Most of them say, and by the way, you know, your most important duties are your political duties. Um, and people talk about voting and stuff like that. Um, and, and contacting elected representatives and, and things like that. But I'm also interested in, in sort of the more fine grain work of political activism, um, which often is sort of much more onerous than uh, just uh, voting. Uh, which sadly is, seems quite onerous for, for many people in, in the US anyway, but put that aside. Um, but the, the work of like building coalitions, uh, my favorite kind of coalition is uh, if, if, if you think about the incentives that sort of uh, right-wing survivalists might have to have, you know, distributed solar in their community and that, that they might align with these, you know, uh, left-leaning green groups, right? So the work of sort of building those coalitions together and, and, and uh, presenting a sort of united front that says, yeah, we really need to move uh, quickly away from fossil fuels um, is going to take a lot of work. And if we're super focused on not violating the moral obligation to um, emit more than, you know, X amount of tons of, of CO2 per year, um, my sense is that distraction is one word, but also just in terms of depletion and exhaustion. I think people only have so much energy to give to the climate change problem. And if, uh, if, it's, if it really is a moral obligation to reduce your carbon footprint, then that's pretty serious. You should feel guilty if you don't, other people should shame you. And, and, and that might end up taking a lot of energy away from uh, what I see as sort of like the necessary um, moves of citizens to ensure that there's a just and effective transition to a low carbon economy. But, but some could argue that individual norm change and individual responsibility are the first step to political organization and movements. In other words, uh, we didn't count on, for, for example, in the civil rights movement or something, individual consciousness came first and they realized, oh, maybe I got to go help the people around me and, and not be a racist anymore. And that gradually um, consolidated, consolidated into political movements that eventually led to passing of legislations. So, so it's a much more bottoms up gradual process of norms changing. Even today in most progressive movements that, that we can think about today, it's it the political world and window when we talk about the social discourse, it's all about influencing personal behaviors and perceptions of issues first before getting any major political uh, legislative consensus, which seems to be in an absolute complete great gridlock today, right? So, uh, right in the U.S. anyway. Yeah. In, in the U.S., right? So, so one could say in the U.S. because it's so hard to see a major climate bill comes through, it is much more important to focus on individual actions where at least individual actions and norm change 
will serve as the backbone, as the keystone to any political action. That's interesting. So can you give me one more example? Apart, so the civil rights thing, I think is interesting because there, you know, the, the, the problem was, you know, within a community. Yeah. And so uh, the, the, I, the same kind of work of sort of realizing systemic injustice at yes. that time sort of lent itself to, you know, you could do that work while doing the kind of political organizing that I'm talking about, like the two kind of fit yeah. together. So what's another one when you're talking about the Overton window? I'm interested in another uh, example. So when I was, well, as you know, I wrote my philosophy seminars final paper <laughs> refuting your argument, but so uh, uh, you, you, you must have read part of my, my writings, but when I was doing my research, I was talking to professors, um, I guess one example that people often give is same-sex marriage, that the Supreme Court or the courts in general uh, track social norm changes, they track public sentiment, and therefore they say, even though there's no uh, legislative um, progress made for same-sex marriage. That seems to be what most Americans agree on. Therefore, we rule the case. And well, we don't have to go into the whole debate about whether Supreme Court should be making uh, legislative kind of changes. But anyways, but, but that's one example. Another example might be um, secondhand smoking. Uh, so in other words, it's, it's not like the legislation or, or that, that said you shouldn't do seatbelt or, or, or second sense smoking in, in indoors per se, but it's just that our perceived harm of secondhand smoking ha has really gone up during a, a window of time. Therefore, we don't tolerate that as much in public anymore. Um, mm -hmm. so, so these are all examples where I guess grassroots activism and education changed public perceptions of harm and therefore that would eventually lead to any legislative change. Yeah, no, those are good examples. I'm, I'm wondering if, um, this is really sort of food for thought, for, um, but there, there's a sort of binary aspect to them, right? Like either either gay marriage is permitted or or not. Um, secondhand smoking, like you either smoke, sort of smoke around other people or you don't in a way. And then there, it's, it, it's a relatively sort of simple issue. Whereas one's carbon footprint has such complexity uh, that virtually everything we do has some kind of carbon footprint. Um, so I think, I don't, put it this way, I, I don't think it's obvious that sort of every uh, regulatory change starts with a shift in social awareness. I think some do and, sure. and some don't. Sure. And I think there has been, you know, big shift in social awareness in terms of uh, the sort of the importance and gravity of climate change. That, that's definitely shift. So maybe now it's time for uh, regulation to step in and uh, change the incentives for major players by enacting, you know, carbon pricing and then uh, a few other things, maybe subsidies for renewable energy um, and uh, yeah, strong sort of adaptation programs and things like this. It's, it, it seems to be, you know, at that level where it starts to get interesting, you know, exactly yes. how uh, we transition to the net zero uh, sort of economy is, is going to be a, a technical question. And it's not something that sort of consumers uh, or, or private individuals um, maybe have 
the best sort of grasp on. I see. So, so you're almost saying that we are, this is such a unpredictable complex system that, that needs some kind of action to, to address it. Climate change is such a complex system, but to, to say that individuals ought to change their norms in some significant way, that, that's almost kind of a distraction or, or like we don't know what the payoff would be for this kind of attention to or, or energy spent on this activity. Whereas we could have totally spent that activity on political action or something else that would result in much greater expected uh, outcome. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's not so, I mean, I'm, I'm basically an optimist at heart and I, I think, you know, uh, really, <laughs> the, 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 the environmentalists, the environmentalists will, will, will win on this one. I mean, we're all environmentalists now in one way or the other, but, um, I, you know, I, I see it. I see a clean energy future. Um, I see. So it, it's just a matter of, you know, how quickly we can get there and, and things like that. Um, and, but I, but that said, I wouldn't be sure that sort of any, any particular sort of political campaign or, um, any particular sort of coalition of groups or, you know, any kind of sort of political push is definitely has sort of more chance of succeeding um, than another. And then I just see very little chance of a sort of widespread self-sacrifice of the kinds of things that we see as a sort of comfortable and interesting life, having high mobility and having, uh, uh, comfortable living arrangements I are see. two things with very high yeah. carbon emissions. Whereas yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, relatively easy to, you know, it doesn't cost you that much to allow, you know, uh, your, your gay neighbor to get married. It, it can cost you a lot to try and uh, reduce your, your carbon emissions in terms of I see. life that you, that you want to lead. So, so sacrifice, I, I think, is, 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 is a part of that. Which, which is what makes this such a different issue from same-sex marriage. Because for me to say I support same-sex marriage or support, that, that doesn't really affect my life per se, or, or, or it doesn't require me to make huge amount of sacrifice. But for me to say, I'm, I'm not going to have an SUV, I'm not going to eat these kinds of food, I'm not going to eat meat, I'm not going to do this and that, that would actually impose a lot of individual sacrifice that individuals will not be able to, to take, will not be willing to take up. Yeah, and that, that's the thing. And for a lot of people, it, it might not be that hard, you know. Like if you've got other reasons why you want to be vegan, like it's it's just that's a bonus automatically. That, yeah. that that a vegan diet is is uh, is better for the carbon. environment. Yeah, um, but for for a lot of people, uh, it it might be quite a big sacrifice. And I think for for all, almost all of us who travel, uh, we feel that 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 aspect limiting our uh, international travel is, is definitely a kind of sacrifice. So now I just want to pivot back to the sort of other moral aspects here. So um, uh, I said there's a lot of ways we can think about it. So one thing we say in the paper, and we probably don't say it like loudly enough, is it can be, you know, ideal to live a low carbon life. Um, there can be something, uh, I think, uh, in a way sort of like beautiful about someone who's able to live like a happy and fulfilling life 
sort of fully within their sort of uh, local world and they, they get by just, you know, Zooming their friends who live far off lands um, uh, and, and, they, and they bike everywhere and they're super healthy. Like they, they, yeah. there's, there's something great about that lifestyle. And we can say, yeah, that's great. Like maybe you chose to do this for climate reasons and good on you. You're showing sacrifice and you're being an example of what's possible and, and all these things. So praise is totally appropriate for, for these kinds of changes. So I don't want to get too sort of tied up in this kind of like, is it going to be a social change that sort of uh, fixes everything? Was it going to be sort of like a top-down technocratic change? Because the social changes can come about by us praising those who go above and beyond. And, and so it was like, oh, I want to be like Tim. He's, he's, he's doing the right thing. And, rather and, than saying everybody is morally responsible or, or something. In the, in the... Yeah, rather than saying that you're, you're violating a, a moral obligation by not being like Tim. I guess another, by the way, is that the positive view? Would that be the positive view of, of looking at, at things? Okay, so uh what do you what do you mean what do you mean by positive? well we, we well I, I suppose i probably got the uh, concepts mixed up we can go there later but i, I guess my, my my pushback i was wanted to say was but i was interviewing branko milanovic who is this very famous leftist economist and he brought up another political economist uh, at yale who, whose name is john romer who has written very extensively about building cooperative economies through this kind of bottoms up mental ideological change basically that, that would not require top-down policy prescription. So, so in other words, for example, we now uh, classify garbage at home and recycle, not because we are under some big brother watching us, we're under some kind of uh, moral pu pu punishment, but, but we, we, we've internalized the idea so much that, that we just do it. And uh, we, we, we can hopefully reach a state like that for climate change, meaning I no longer need to feel the more responsibility to minimize my carbon emission. But I just do that because that is really the Kantian approach, which is I uh, the duty to perform such personal obligations or duties is basically not from comes not from the obedience, uh, but from what I expect other people to do to me and, and like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it could have a lot of sources. It could be golden rule or it could just be you do it because other people do it and it's normal. Right. Exactly. You do. That's that's the nice link between normative and normal, and you know, like most of us want to be normal. <laughs> so it's it's still desirable, as you said. It's you sh you should praise those who minimize individual carbon emissions. We just shouldn't um, kind of punish them morally in, in, in any sense. But punish the ones who who not who not trying not. to reduce the emissions. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Dr. Kingston, by the way, so when you came to our class, I mean, when we first read your essay, everybody was obviously outraged in some sense, uh, <laughs> in quotation marks, which is that how can this person say that individual responses don't matter, whatever, whatever. Obviously, they didn't read carefully enough. I didn't read carefully enough about the nuances of your I have a different memory of this class, but sure. Yes, I, I know. <laughs> I'm saying in a very metaphorical way, which is that obviously it is nowadays, it, the, the social norm is that you, you have to stick to the script that I acknowledge climate change. We got to do everything that is possible. The government should invest a lot of money. We have to do this and that to, to address climate change. So when, when someone like you that presents a somewhat contrarian argument uh, and without reading very closely between the lines and, and understanding the nuances, people could easily misunderstand you. And, and 
I think after understanding your arguments much more precisely, I have a very difficult difficult time actually refuting it <laughs> because you uh, and that, that is your personal story with this as well, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, um, I well, I want to go even further back than than what we talked about in in, in the class, but I was definitely. Uh, under the impression that I had a moral obligation to reduce my carbon footprint as low as possible. And in New Zealand, where I'm from, everybody flies overseas uh, once they turn 20 uh, and they, they have a life in uh, at least Australia, but more often Europe. At least um, Australia, yeah. <laughs> and we call it the, the, the big OE, the big overseas experience. But I was like, this doesn't seem right. Like, it's not necessary for me to fly over the here, so I should enjoy New Zealand. And so... I did my my overseas experience like in New Zealand, um, uh, and it was only like uh, many years later that I actually flew to Europe and 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 really spent time with my family in in, in Europe. But even then, I was like, I want to travel overland. I don't want to fly. It's unnecessary emissions. So I was I was all in. Um, uh, uh, and gradually, I think. Uh, Something didn't seem quite right about that. And when I got to Duke, uh, Walter said, hey, you know, I wrote this paper back in 2004. That is your um, co-author, uh, Walter Sinner Armstrong. Yeah, Walter Sinner Armstrong, yeah. Said, uh, I wrote this paper back in 2004, which argues that we don't have moral obligation to reduce a, a greenhouse gas, gas footprint or go joy guzzling. And uh, you should help me write responses to, to my critics because I've had a lot of critics. Like you say, so a lot of people feel like you know, that they, they, they want to take this idea down. And I said, well, I'm one of your critics, you know, I'm not going to help out. <laughs> um, but over time, you know, I, I spent a semester uh, studying climate ethics uh, with Doug McLean at UNC. And I set myself the project of trying to tell Walterson and Armstrong why, why he was wrong. And uh, I came up short. I didn't think any of the criticisms uh, held water. Uh, especially, like you say, once you look at it carefully and say, we're not talking about like what to praise, we're talking about, you know, who deserves blame. And that's, that's sort of like, you know, they're, they're the big guns of morality and whether you want to bring them out on individuals who choose to joy guzzle um, uh, seems like a very important question and one that even in our paper at the end, we don't say, therefore, you know, obviously everyone is blameless. Um, for joy guzzling, we say you know, there's not a good enough case yet to, to blame people for joy guzzling. And I want to add one more thing. When we're talking about this sort of changing social norms, we also say in the paper, at some point in the future, it might be, there might be a general social norm that you don't joy guzzle or you don't take more than two yes. flights overseas a year. And yes. at that point, doing, you know, doing these things might be blame, blameworthy. They might be wrong. Um, but we, we're not at that point yet. So, so maybe we have a uh, sort of particular view about how that kind of social norm change happens. And it's much more in terms of um, uh, picking out exemplars and it's a kind of a slow change, stuff like this. Or maybe the government will fix it all if we hold their feet to the fire. I see. Well, Dr. Kingston, should we maybe pivot a little bit to consumer ethics? I, I think this is probably the, what is related, which is that 
uh, we, we talked about individual responsibility when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. So a lot of people would say, oh, when I buy products, when I go shop at Whole Foods or something, these products I buy are already tainted. They are already causing a lot of um, supply chain issues or, or emissions uh, while, while they're being produced. And therefore, yeah. I am, uh, in some sense, responsible and blameworthy for, for doing that. So would you mind giving us some general outtakes of uh, your, your thoughts on consumer ethics and what you wrote? Yeah. Yeah. So this was, um, it was kind of work I was doing in parallel with that Joy Guzzling paper. And I was thinking about sort of the, as you say, the whole swath of problems that lie upstream of everyday items that we buy. So, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how depressing to make this because people don't always think about sort of all the different problems, but most people have probably heard about forced labor and the cocoa supply chain. Um, that, that's a big one. People talk about slave chocolate and slave-free chocolate. Um, so a lot of the cocoa workers in Ivory Coast um, are young and work in hazardous conditions. And uh, whether you call it slavery or not it's often the, the sort of the level of consent is somewhat dubious that their, their family might have encouraged them to go and work and then you know the, the, the hours and the, the pay is very long and then you have indentured labor and you have all these kinds of things migrant labor is often exploited in this way you know laborers turn up in a country and um, the boss uh, basically just you know takes their passport and then they have pretty much complete control over the migrant labor. Um, so, you know, those are labor issues and there's environmental issues. Uh, you know, you might think about deforestation with regard to palm oil and stuff like that. Um, all sorts of local air and water pollution, especially in extractive industries like mining. Um, you've got uh, the conflict minerals aspect. Um, so Blood Diamonds, it was you know, sort of on a lot of people's mind when there was a Hollywood film about it, um, but it's, it's still going on. And uh, in terms of the minerals that are mined in unstable regions are often, you know, you get these artisanal miners, uh, villages just mining rare metals, rare earths, and then the local militia uh, basically sort of taxes them. And, and, and then so, you know, where these minerals go, they go into the supply chain, they go into smelters and they end up in everyday products like the computer and webcam that, that is allowing this conversation. Thanks for reminding us about it. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, if you look closely at, at pretty much any product from a global supply chain, there's sort of some degree of taint. Um, moral taint, it's, it's associated with some uh, quite sort of chilling processes uh, and actions somewhere upstream in that supply chain. It's hard, hard to know about. And carbon emissions is one of that. Some of the goods uh, we buy have, have very high carbon footprints and it's sort of hard to know exactly how high. Um, so from a consumer perspective, uh, there's a, there's a big question about, about what to do. And um, almost no one sort of argues for completely clean hands. But in a way, you know, this debate about, um, the reason why I think we're talking about consumer ethics is it's sort of 
shows how thinking about the carbon footprint of uh, things we buy is just one element of all sorts of sort of failures of regulation that are upstream, right? Upstream of the products we buy, including the gas we might buy if we if we have a petrol a petrol car, right? That's not being appropriately regulated in the sense that um, we're not paying a carbon tax on it. Uh, we're we're imposing a negative externality upon other people. So that supply chain is not being regulated. And a lot of other supply chains are not being well regulated. Supply chain for um, cocoa is probably not being well regulated. Um, and, you know, numerous other goods. So, so it's a big question of, of what consumers should do in response to that. And yeah, uh, I can talk about my response to that, but I've been talking for a while. So. Yeah, please. Uh, 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 um, and also, uh, you also mentioned this part about uh, channel on, on, on really benefits principle. And, uh, yeah, response, yeah, I'll get yeah. yeah, for sure. So a lot of people sort of approach the problem. It's like, okay, so you're in the supermarket. How do you know how much to research about whether this chocolate really is, uh, you know, slave free or not? Um, my response is, let's look at it another way. Let's look at, um, assume you have bought something tainted, like all of us almost certainly will. What then is your responsibility? And I argue um, that you respond when when you buy these tainted goods, just like filling up, you know, the gas tank with this uh, gas that you're not paying carbon tax on or high enough carbon tax on. Um, you've received a kind of I call it a cavalier dividend. It's a little a little bit of time or a little bit of you know money um, that you've saved uh, by purchasing a tainted good and and not seeking the sort of the potentially quite expensive um quite pure you know locally made organic uh whatever else you like you know you know very pure good right yeah i don't want to get started on organics sure, sure. <laughs> but whatever you think is the, the the sort of paragon of sort of purity right it's probably gonna not be the cheapest easiest thing to find so when you buy the cheapest, easiest thing that you can find, but it's got all these problems upstream, you're benefiting from a lack of regulation upstream. That good probably would have been more expensive had there been, you know, sort of clear labor rights uh, upheld in the supply chain of the, of the chocolate bar, for instance. So you're getting this cavalier dividend. And I argue that, you know, because of that, that's, uh, the sort of quantum of benefit that you owe towards political solutions to some kind of upstream unruliness. So for some people, it'll be climate change, right? Like they could take, this is my vision, they could think about all the ways they're benefiting from all kinds of upstream unruliness, even um, uh, carbon emissions, but also all the other ones we talked about and channel it all towards, you know, getting deeply involved in a, a local group that, that that's doing everything they can to push their senator to vote for a, a carbon pricing bill, right? Like that's channeling the unruly benefit into what I call a, a fitting project, a, a project that might actually 
make a difference. Now that's just climate change, right? But someone else might be really motivated about the labor issue. And uh, they might take all of the unruly benefit, including the unruly benefit they gain from uh, buying things that don't have an embedded carbon tax in the cost of them. They take all of that benefit and channel it into uh, responding to labor rights abuses in maybe even in a particular domain. So maybe it's um, maybe it is about the chocolate supply chain. Maybe it is about you know the shrimp supply chain. Maybe it's um, maybe it's about sweatshops in Bangladesh. You know, but really finding out about the issue and seeing you know what NGOs are actually doing uh, the work of trying to reform uh, these processes in a sort of democratic and acceptable way, and and supporting them. And that is going to take a lot of work, but I think I get a lot of benefit from buying things that are under-regulated. <laughs> so, I, so, so, so I don't deserve to hold on to those benefits. I should relinquish them, channel them into political activity. It's like the hedge fund manager that dodged taxes, so he donates his profits to, <laughs> to nonprofits or something to help solve poverty. Not, not okay, same, well, but... taxes, yeah, okay. But my point is, um, it seems I, I, that we're, we're just I don't want to agree with that. Like paying the taxes, that's a civic duty, right? right? So even though you don't agree where the taxes are going, you've got to pay them because that's what it means to be part of a democratic society, right? Right, but my so, point is, the, the way we seem to be addressing injustices is that it's not by rejection of using the causing the injustice in the first place, but by helping make up for it because it's so hard to to get rid of that but but right yeah i wouldn't say i wouldn't say you're making up for causing the injustice because i don't think an individual consumer just like in the climate change case i don't think an individual consumer of a chocolate bar causes you know some percentage of uh labor rights abuses in the ivory coast right but you you but you help sustain so you're not making up for causing it but you just have a benefit that you haven't completely earned I see. Do, but do you think it, it, the consumer helps sustain such a injustice in, in some way? Yeah, again, um, helping, uh, contributing. Yeah, but these aren't the same as causing harm. So, so that's why, again, I don't jump to talking about moral obligations to sure. sort of cease what you're doing or to, to reduce your footprint. Um, uh, we haven't talked about the epistemic issues of how you would try and figure out how to do that, but that's a big part of the issue. Um, but even if you could figure out how you do that, I don't think, again, you have a moral obligation to reduce your footprint, but maybe you have a moral obligation to channel the, the benefits that you have towards political solutions. Is that kind of like what Professor Peter Singer is saying, which is that you... you almost have an immoral obligation to at least maybe use 10% of your savings or something to uh, do some good, uh, maximum the welfare of the overall society through effective altruism or similar initiatives, basically. Yeah, so I feel like I, I, I believe I come sort of kind, of kind of very close to that effective altruist kind of way of looking at things because I am interested in, you know, what will actually make a difference. And that's an important part of the, of the piece of the puzzle. And you might sort of after, you know, studying what, where the best place to channel your, your Cavalier dividend is, you might figure out that it's, you know, the best thing you can do is reduce economic inequality 
uh, in a global sense and you might you know channel it all towards give directly or something like that right one of these charities that give well recommends um, but that would be notice it would be for a different reason than what Singh is saying so uh, Singh is saying look we just have an obligation to do the most good we can in the world right and I'm saying okay maybe you know uh, put that aside right that, that's an obligation most of us do you know quite poorly at it right yeah it's sort of maybe a stronger obligation uh, to give up at least that portion that uh, I want to be careful about this but it's, it's that portion of the benefit that arises from an unjust lack of regulation right that, that's that's a special kind of holding that you have. So, you know, Singh is thinking about all the resources you have and not thinking so much about where they come from. And I'm like, look. I see, I see, as, that's a difference. Yeah, as, and as, um, I guess, thoughtful, compassionate, conscientious human beings, uh, most of us kind of care where our benefits come from. And we, we feel that taint. It might not be completely rational, but we feel it's, you know, it's, uh, not entirely justified for us to really benefit from that. And for some people, they want to shun the good and be like, okay, I'm never buying slave chocolate again, right? But for other people, they might say, look, let's think about that it's only a portion of this benefit. Like the chocolate itself isn't bad. It's just been produced in an unjustly unregulated way. And so, so there's a portion of my holdings, even beyond uh, just my general duty to do good in the world, whether I have that or not. Um, uh, there's a portion which really maybe I'm not justified in keeping. Do you see this as a somewhat idealized view that is hard for the society to adopt en masse? So, so in other words, we, we maybe cognitively we recognize this is the case, but it's just very hard to, to implement it. Yeah, so I think I it's, um, I, th I think there's sort of the amount that I benefit from the lack of an appropriate carbon tax might be, you know, a few thousand dollars, right? And I, I, I doubt that I've relinquished that in an appropriate way. Um, and I'm kind of lucky in that, you know, I, I could be self-serving and say, well, you know, I'm like, I'm working as a scholar, you know, like this is important stuff. Um, but, you know, being being real, I, I think I'm falling short of, of, of what I'm advocating. Um, but I think there's a difference. So and so you might say, well, Ewan, you know, uh, if you're falling short, uh, if if most people are falling short of this duty to channel the unruly benefits, um, isn't isn't this just as sort of demanding and unrealistic as the view that says you have a duty to stop joy guzzling? But the difference is that. Uh, there's, there's always, uh, you know, there, there's always time. <laughs> there's always time to, 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 to start channeling that benefit. And it's, uh, I needn't uh, feel guilty or face social sanction um, uh, until it's sort of clear that I have no intention of doing so. So I think it sort of fits much more this idea that uh, the the sort of the the struggle to to bring about justice, which does 
you know, take work and difficult work of organizing with other people, political work, um, is something that we can sort of continually devote resources to, and this will be fulfilling the obligation. So it's, so it's more forward-looking, I think, than, than, than backward-looking. My carbon, my carbon footprint has already happened. Um, I can make incremental changes in the years ahead, but I, I could really uh, move forward with, with channeling my unruly benefit and, 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 and be liable to no negative sanction. You are very optimistic in, in some sense, Dr. Kingston, because I feel like well, what is happening almost seems to be that we are forced to maintain a system of injustice or global supply chain or whatever that we don't really know how to get out of. And it's very hard to say that somebody is blameworthy morally for purchasing certain products. And, and as you said, because it's so hard to pin down individual responsibility and contribution, we, we can't really do much about it. So, so the best thing we could do is doing something, what you're proposing, which is try to mitigate our impacts in a ex-post way, in a, in a post-sumptuous way. Because we, it's not pre preventable, almost, by, by purchasing by purchasing iPhones that are made by child labor in China. And that, by the way, that is illustration. That is not what's actually happening per se, but. Yeah, no, I, right. the iPhone one is, is pretty complicated. Right, exactly. It's like you can't get out of this, this chain or this cycle of, whether you call it injustice or, or just bad things happening. Yeah, and it's complicated by the fact that a lot of the stuff that we see as morally abhorrent um, might make more sense if you're living in the society, the classic, you know, cases. I don't know if you read that Bernard Powell book, Out of Poverty or something like that. He's an economist. No, I haven't. No. But, um, you know, he says, look, if you're just worried about low wages and sweatshops, think about what the alternative is for someone who's taking a sweatshop job. Um, it's uh, potentially doing something as as uh, miserable as as being a trash picker, um, sorting through you know the garbage piles to find valuable goods, right? Like so. So compared to that, you know, a, a low wage work for by a consenting adult in the sweatshop actually uh, uh, seems pretty good. So so we're sort of pointing to the the point that. Uh, you know, these problems are, are not like kind of easily visible into uh, here's the, the heroes and the villains. And our job is to always just associate ourselves with the heroes and to shun the villains. Um, where the villains might be, you know, the, the, the evil switch off owner or something like that. Um, so, so once things are sort of seen as more of a structural issue you're right it can be kind of daunting because you can see how long it will take uh, for these terrible uh, tragic situations to uh, improve but over history i mean they have improved uh, so you know in the developed world switch up labor as we think about it 
were, was rife and it was it was gradually through you know like labor movements and fights for eight hour days and and good because working conditions and, and yeah so 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 there's a there's a you know like uh complicated interaction between the overall wealth and prosperity of a country and the, the, the labor standards that it has um you could talk about kind of where the causality goes but um uh, I think fundamentally the yeah may, may, maybe part of uh, my optimism that you know things things will get better is, is looking looking back at history uh, and part of it is uh, this kind of approach that well if, if we do just divide the world into heroes and villains and 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 things that we should shun and things that we should um sort of uh celebrate um uh it, it might not sort of be the best way forward so sort of focusing on 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 little gains uh incremental gains um, might be the, the sort of important way to go. Dr. Kingston, should we talk a little bit more about the epistemic part of the problem? Uh, I, yeah, I touched say, on that a little bit, yeah. Um, I, I guess, so you, you sent me the study of how bad people are at figuring out what reduces their personal carbon footprint. Uh, part of the argument for the premise of regulation is that this takes the epistemic load from individual problem, which is what we talked about, you get the taxes, regulations, subsidies. If you get those things right, you, you don't need people to, to have, you know, self kind of epistemic uh, judgments on what to do to reduce things. Likewise, with consumer ethics, which is if you can get the environmental, uh, if you can reduce sweatshops through regulation, you wouldn't need people to judge which potato chips to buy that are not from sweatshops. Um, that is what we're, we're, we're saying, I guess. Um, so, so if people are proven to consistently underestimate their carbon footprint or, or just how they calculate how to reduce their carbon footprint, um, don't people say that you should let the free market work it out? You should let the people decide the government shouldn't come in to, to take the action. So I guess what, what seems to be a realistic package of options that we should push for, uh, let's say in the United States in, in the next few years. So we're just talking uh, climate change now. Well, it doesn't have to be climate change. Sorry. I mean, I didn't mean to limit the conversation to, to that's, that. That's, that's, that's fine. It's probably easier, right? So <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, the point about the, the free market taking care of it, I mean, the obvious point is that most of the people being affected by climate change aren't in the same market because they might not be born, they might be in other countries and, and be very poor, but if they could, many people would, would pay us to reduce our emissions, right? But they can't. And so, so it's, you know, we can't just, just, just look at the market for that. So then the question becomes, um, so, you know, what balance of just a pure 
carbon tax or cap and trade system, which is just sort of putting a price on carbon emissions versus more of a command and control aspect goes. And that's that's definitely like out of my wheelhouse. Um, you know, that's that's when you really want the, the policy of the policy punchline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I see. Um, but, 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 but yeah. But the but and I think you described very well the idea that these things are complicated, like to what balance, you know, wind versus solar should be in the mix. Um, you know, we don't want consumers sort of uh, clamoring for, you know, one energy company over another in the future because they think they've got the balance of wind and solar wrong in their, you know, in their energy portfolio, right? Like that, that's a technical problem. Yeah. And it's not, it's not for individual electricity consumers to decide. Um, that's, that's why we have government. That's the whole reason for like representative, you know, the, the argument for why we have representatives in democracy rather than put everything to referenda is the world is too complicated for people going about their daily life to really understand what, what will help. So we get a representative who spends their whole day <laughs> learning about policy from their advisors. And so you have a whole network of people that are, that are focused on these things, not consumers. I see. Um, when we talk about policy making, when we talk about influences, we um, one issue people would bring up is large corporations' influences, unduly influences on, on political actions through lobbying, with such, such and so on. And you wrote, you wrote me this about a plot by Big Fuel, a Big Fossil. Oh, which right. is rumblings from the far left that emphasis on individual carbon footprints is kind of a plot by big fossil industry. And uh, you sent me a couple articles that help connect the dots. And would you mind telling us a little bit about, about that part? Yeah, there's a, there's a few pieces that have sort of come out recently more in the popular press than the academic sort of world where they're kind of yeah. telling the story of, um, I think, uh, I'm just. Have you got written down? Like, I just want to quote that. The, is it basically saying that the, it, 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 if it's if individuals are focusing on their individual footprints, it is better for big fossil because it distracts from genuine political action like pricing carbon or, or carbon regulations that is much greater threat to their profitability. Yeah. No. For sure. So. Um, and the, the piece, I've just found the piece that I was, I was thinking about, it's, 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 it says The Carbon Footprint Sham by Mark Kaufman, and it's in, it's in Mashable. But the, <laughs> the um, I don't know, you know, sort of how serious this is, but uh, Kaufman makes the argument in that piece that uh, one of the first uses of the phrase carbon footprint was coming from BP. And it's it might be sort of convenient for... Uh, big fossil companies to say, well, this is, you know, a problem uh, of individual consumption, rather than, as you say, rather than, you know, back, back in 2004, BP definitely wasn't pro carbon price. A lot of fossil fuel companies now say, yeah, we, we do want a carbon prices. There's probably been a kind of little bit of horse trading there where the idea is that they don't have to accept sort of liability for damages in the past if they if they actually support a carbon price now. Um, so, so it's kind of a little bit complicated, but definitely in the past, um, it could be that, you know, I'll, I'll say that, 
yeah, it's it's kind of convenient for us to think of it as an individual issue um, rather than a, an issue of regulation. It's convenient for for uh, companies that uh, are making a lot more money because there is no regulation. <laughs> I see. Especially if people aren't actually going to change, like they might be promoting reduce your carbon footprint, yeah. um, uh, knowing that you know it's so hard to do, so people won't do it, so it's not going to affect their bottom line that much. Whereas a carbon price probably would. This is a very progressive argument, I have to say, which is the, what <laughs> this is what progressive these days would say, which which is, uh, uh, I mean, the kind of pro business moderates would say, oh look, the big companies are actually the ones driving investments in climate change. They, we, therefore, we should work with these capitalists and and people on the far left or or. Uh, the very progressive people would say, ah, what are you talking about? It's all a PR campaign. They're doing their thing and they're maximizing their bottom line and therefore don't be deceived by the corporate PR. And, and it's this kind of push and pull. I yeah, think. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and, and then you also wrote to me something, which I, I find fascinating about uh, gateway or dead end, which is, ah, right. there is an open question whether caring about your individual footprint is a gateway to further political action or a distraction from it, which is we already talked about this um, again and again, but you also wrote to me, I, I think, which is one part I haven't brought up, is that it is fundamentally an empirical question, according to you. Right. And, and how do you, I guess, measure whether the conscientious consumption is a gateway to political action or a getaway from it? Yeah. Yeah. So the way that um, the article that I sent you uh, looked at it, it was, you know, just looking at like uh, Belgium and not even French and Dutch speakers in Belgium, but yeah, like Flemish speakers in, in Belgium, I think. Um, and they, they use like a longitudinal study and they asked them, you know, which of these behaviors have you partaken in in the, in the last year um, and they they look to see whether um, those citizens that uh, sort of changed this sort of mix from being you know, like how many people change their mix from being sort of not very politically active but consuming conscientiously um, to being more politically active right so if if the conscientious consumption at time one increases the, the likelihood that they'll be politically active in time two. Um, and they found a small effect, um, which is the, you know, the gateway hypothesis. It's like, yeah, um, there's a chance that uh, uh, getting more involved in, in, in uh, trying to buy slave-free chocolate is going to make you potentially more likely to, I think the things they, they measured was um, uh, attending a demonstration or joining a political party or um yeah so let's let's look at those two ones like attending a demonstration or joining a political party one they called sort of like informal like outside uninstitutionalized um political yeah. engagement and one is institutionalized joining joining yeah. political parties institutionalized political engagement and they found that it um had a stronger effect on uninstitutionalized engagement 
So you're more likely to, to, to go to a protest um, and slightly more likely to, uh, to join a political party. And I've sort of been arguing that this kind of, you know, getting involved in the formal system, turning up to the electric utility board meeting or, and trying to figure out what's going on with that in your, in your uh, local jurisdiction. Um, this is the stuff that, that, that we really need. But um, uh, so it might be a gateway, but it might also be a, sort of a gateway towards seeing the world in more of a polarized, you know, victims, villains and, and heroes kind of way of looking at the world rather than how do we get this done? So, so that's why I say it's sort of still open is we have this, this one study that's longitudinal. There's other studies that show a correlation, but it's, but it's unclear whether there's a causal effect. Um, but the longitudinal study is interesting, but it's, it's, you know, it's very small and that's just come out. So I'm interested in sort of something that I'm watching, watching to see um, how it goes. I have to say, I, um, I'm somewhat skeptical about the study. When it comes to these kind of empirical studies, I, I always feel like a large part of it is driven by narrative, which is that I already have a hypothesis in mind and I seek out to pick out the data because also so many confounding variables and it's, it's hard to, to do statistics these days, to do econometrics and to pin down the actual causality from different correlations. So, so as, as someone who studies economics, I'm, I'm not fully convinced yet, but I, but I see your, your, your point. I, I, I think it is just hard to, to measure obviously individuals impact on, on carbon footprint, but also very hard to, to measure how people, how politically engaged people are, because it's very un, unlikely that if people don't recycle, they'll use the energy to protest in the town hall, but, but there may be a small contribution, but um, I don't know, but, but, I guess, do you think there's a potential for an opposite process in which, I guess, consumers who enjoy things like um, factory farmed meat or, or fast fashion or SUVs, they become resistant to change thanks to activism that moralizes their consumer practices, right? So that, that is something we've discussed a little bit, which is we, we fear that if you moralize the issue to such an extent, they will throw the towel uh, once and for all. Yeah, it's... It's interesting to think, uh, I'm going to take this in a little tangential way, but it's, it's sort of easy to think that moral progress is all about moralizing uh, things that, you know, like uh, we used to feel that, you know, uh, treating like kicking, kicking animals or something like that was okay. And now we realize no, actually, it's, you know, it's not okay. They have these inner lives and deserve respect. Um, we used to, you know, society used to have norms where uh, domination of, of women was, was accepted. And now we realize, you know, like that all these kinds of domination should be moralized and, and someone who tries to do them is doing something deeply wrong. Um, so maybe, you know, moral, and often we think about what things are we doing now that we'll look back on in 50 or 100 years and be like, oh, how could we do that? That, that, was, that was terrible. But uh, moral progress also sometimes is a process of demoralization. That, that things that we used to think were terribly wrong, like showing one's ankles in public or uh, something like that, uh, now we start to see is, is not so wrong, right? So, uh, so I, think, I think you're right that um, the more we, we sort of take actions in our daily lives in terms of 
diet and purchases and um, travel and, and say, okay, these people are, you know, these people are doing it in the morally right way and these people are doing it in the morally wrong way. Those who are on the wrong side, given motivated reasoning, they're more likely to sort of reject the worldview of people that are telling them they're doing something wrong than they are to actually change their ways. Um, and what's more, if they reject that worldview, then they're definitely not going to be pushing for the political change and they're going to resist it. So yeah, short answer, yes. <laughs> yes, uh, so that was from individual consumer's perspective, individual's perspective. What about leaders? That, that is one other thing we, we kept talking about, which uh, the credibility of the messenger. So for mm. people like Al Gore or Greta yeah. Thunberg, yeah. should they be allowed to joy guzzle? at all yeah. to, to go on a Sunday fine ride or, or for Al Gore to have, uh, because a lot of people would use that to criticize him and say, oh, look at Al Gore. He lives in a huge mansion. He has a security detail of like 20 secret service agents. Why should I listen to him when he's causing so much more emissions than me? And, and there's obviously many ways to debunk that argument, but it's still, it's quite popular, this kind of argument. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's uh, if Al Gore is saying, hey, everyone, you should, individually like live in small houses with low electricity and he has a big house with a high electricity budget then you know i think it's it's still ad hominem to to come at him and say you know like therefore your argument is wrong but he does sort of lose a bit of credibility um and i think you know there's something deep in us that that is revolted by hypocrisy um and 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 that's only human so so yeah, so 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 those who are advocating for lifestyle changes who aren't making them themselves, uh, there's you know both sort of common sense indicates that you know they're not going to be as effective. And then we have the study by uh, Elka Weber's uh, Elka Weber's lab in that coming from Princeton um, that that shows it's the case. And then it's a more complicated one when Al Gore, if Al Gore says, look, this isn't about individuals. This is about, you know, getting the proper price on carbon. And then someone says, but you live in a, you know, in a, in a big house with, and, and I've, I've got your, you know, your electricity bill right here and it's huge. Um, that seems much more obviously ad hominem. So uh, speaking like as a philosopher, uh, it seems like, you know, the best response to that is, look, that's just a fallacy. I'm talking about a systemic response and you're criticizing my individual action. Like these are completely different things. Um, uh, but again, there does seem to be evidence um, that people's credibility of even messengers calling for policy changes is reduced when people find out they have high carbon footprints themselves. Uh, how to respond to that? Uh, I think it's a kind of personal taste, I think, of, of, the, uh, of the messenger themselves. Um, I think it's perfectly fine for messengers to say, look, like I just did, I'm talking about policy. Don't, you know, I fly everywhere, but, you know, I should be paying a lot more for these plane tickets. <laughs> and if I did, I probably would fly less. Um, and it's also 
perfectly fine for messengers to really say, well, if I want to be a, a super effective messenger, I should um, think about how my actions are being perceived, even if wrongly. And so, you know, Greta is the other example when she tries to take the boat across uh, the Atlantic and ends up probably with a pretty high carbon footprint because sailing across the Atlantic, um, you know, I forget the details, but I, the I know detail she's come under was uh, be because she was, she took the boat, the boat was better than flying with an airplane. However, her crew, her team has to flag back and forth between the US and yeah. Europe. And that ended up causing more emission and people kept, you know, struggling over this detail, which I thought, to be honest, I don't see, see that as a big deal, which is like, if you're a public figure, you have your entourage and they need to incur some carbon yeah. footprint. I think that is largely understandable, but I do think that let's say for someone like Greta Thunberg, if she has the resources to, let's say, not eat meat, to become a vegetarian, to become vegan, even yeah. then she should do it. Or, 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 or like, I, I do think, leaders should be held at a higher standard because they have greater influence and preach. They are essentially preaching from a point of moral superiority in some sense, right? Yeah. I mean, Greta Thunberg telling, I mean, my, my point is, I don't think we should, they're still humans after all, but they should. Um, because right, I think, they, I think you wrote to me and you said, look, it's their choice to, to, to go into yeah, politics. To, to, um, to and part of the cost of that might be being held to an unreasonably high standard in your personal life. Um, so two things, like I think that the debate about Greta Thunberg and the, the flying across the Atlantic thing um, shows just how hard it is to, to, to sort of, uh, if, if someone's coming with that ad hominem attack, it, it seems like nothing that you know, that she could have done might have been sort of enough to Yes, that, that, that is absolutely true. Yes. So, so whether, you know, it's a kind of tactical question whether, whether someone can really have clean hands but then there's a moral question as well and i don't know if you remember this bit from the paper but um this is walter's example not mine but he said yeah so um think of an think of an analogy uh i'm a politician i know that if i got a face tattoo i would be a less effective messenger for <laughs> what I right? yes so i have pragmatic reasons not to get a face tattoo right it, it stops me achieving my goal and it might even be ideal for me not to get a face tattoo. But do I have a moral obligation not to get a face tattoo? It seemed like if, if I got a face tattoo and someone was like, look, you did something really wrong, you should feel guilty about that. Like that seems to be an unreasonable encroachment into personal life. Oh, that's, um, it's hard that's enough being a politician. So, you know, the, the, the I, personal I, I, and the political should be kept separate like this. That seems to be very different from the case of climate change, right? Because for, for climate oh. change, well, for the, in the case of FaceTime, finally, we're getting into a philosophical kind of objections and counter objections. This is great. Finally, an hour and a half into the conversation. But what, what I think is the face tattoo example is that, okay, I, I did something to my body and I'm not really trying to use the face tattoo to send a message to encourage other people to do certain things. But for, for, for converting to veganism or reducing meat consumption or reducing air travel, you as a leader of the climate change movement, you are sending messages regarding how people should behave basically you are telling people how to behave and if, if this politician is in the case of face tattoo if he's preaching some pol policy 
about face tattoo or, or whatever, then, then you, you should live the, the life that is consistent with what you preach, right? For example, like Gavin Newsom, like he, yes, the politician is, uh, he, he has to eat in some restaurant in California and he, he, but if you're preaching about social distancing, you shouldn't have gone to the restaurant. And, mm. and that reduces, you, you should have a moral responsibility to, to keep your word. So, so I think if you preach the policy and you're preaching a certain lifestyle, you should stick to it then you don't preach it. Yeah, so, so I mean, uh, now of all case, we were talking about someone, I, I mean, I'm not actually as familiar with the pronouncements of these people as I could be, but um, to the extent that they're just saying, look, we need, you know, a strong, uh, or, you know, we might need the Green New Deal or uh, we might need, strong price on carbon or something like that do you see that as do you see someone advocating for a strong price of carbon as telling other people how to behave i think if they are willing to pay the price themselves then that is fine so for example if you're a rich man advocating for higher taxes you you should be encouraged or or morally permissive uh permitted to do so you can do so as your free will as long as you actually pay the tax. There are people who advocate for higher taxes and they dodge their taxes. So that would be unacceptable. So in this case, if Greta Thunberg tells me not to eat meat, I think that is a very reasonable stance for her to take as long as she doesn't eat meat. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're back to the, yeah, to the, 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 the two different examples. Of, ex right. Of someone advocating lifestyle change and someone advocating policy change. And, and I see. Um, yeah, and, and the, the Gavin Newsom case, you know, he was definitely advocating lifestyle change. So he, you know, uh, yeah, he should uh, follow through um, in, his own, in his own behavior, for sure. But most, you know, I, I think the push for policy change is, is really what's most needed and it's also what most of the political messengers are saying now so and that's that's a much that's a case that's that's much closer to the face tattoo because if you're calling for policy change then you know the fact that i have such and such a lifestyle is, is like the like the face tattoo it's neither here nor there well there is a it, it, so it's closely uh, connected i'll give you that it's more closely connected but i don't see a principled reason to um, to say that sure. it's so close that you shouldn't be allowed to have a high emitting lifestyle if you're pro carbon tax. So so you sent us this article by Daniela Dover, the walk and the talk about uh, democracy. Right. Yeah, uh, but I mean I, I read that a while ago, more than a month ago. So so I already kind of forgot the argument. About That's more recently democracy. than me. So yeah. <laughs> We don't have to go into it, but I, but I, uh, I want to throw it out there in case some of our listeners are, are interested in that. But it's a good, it's definitely a good article, yeah, for sure. About hypocrisy, about politicians, what to hold people morally responsible and such. But I, I don't know. The, the, I guess the broader philosophical point. I mean, we, we perhaps we can gradually come to that, which is, uh, you said that there are big differences between Professor Peter Singer and you. So for Professor Singer morality has virtually no limits. So any and all actions can be assessed against the moral background. 
And for you, while you are also a consequentialist like Professor Singer, you believe that there is an important value in carving out spaces in life that are immune to moral criticism. Uh, and in that vein, you are following John Stuart Mill. Uh, so, so would you mind telling us a little bit more about, about that? We're basically kind of gradually wrapping up with your yeah. overarching philosophical framework. Broaden, broaden out. Yeah. And I'm the kind of, I'm an unusual kind of philosopher in that I kind of like start, you know, with the real applied stuff. I don't, I don't even like the term applied philosophy in terms of like, you figure out some overarching view and then you apply it to some problems. Like, no, I want to really get clear on like what, what I should do in the supermarket line and, and uh, whether I can, you know, fly across the Atlantic just to, just to see my friends, right? Um, these, are, these are philosophical questions to me, so I'd kind of go for them. And the, the theory stuff is stuff that I sort of touch on. So let's touch on it for a little bit. Um, so Mill is a really interesting character, I think, because um, he was a, not even a consequentialist, he was a utilitarian. He thought that, you know, pleasure um, or the, the, the balance of pleasure over pain um, is uh, the, the, the only good and though ultimately, um, you know, right actions are, are, are those that um, conform to, this is at least one way of reading Mill. It's the way I like to read Mill. The, but then you don't, you don't want to assess every action in terms of whether it will increase pleasure over pain because doing that will decrease the amount of pleasure in the world because we're limited creatures. We, we can't figure this stuff out. You know, all these reasons. Um, we need, you know, uh, guidelines. We need institutions um, that are set up to, to promote the good, um, to, to not put the onus on individuals every time. Um, and we also need uh, the ability for experimentation because even our institutions are not infallible. Um, we need to have experiments in living. We need to have people um, living different kinds of lives um, to try and figure out uh, what works, what's best. Um, and the way to allow that is to sort of limit uh, the, what's the right word here? The, 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 the sort of the, the power that society has over individuals. Um, because if conformity becomes the norm, um, uh, you don't get people, you know, th these kind of eccentrics, which end up actually hitting on some really good ideas. Um, I see. So, so that's, that's one argument. That's like this epistemic argument for allowing people space to experiment. But there's also a, uh, probably a, sort of more direct argument that humans are kind of beings we are, or at least the kind of beings we've become in liberal democratic societies, just desire this kind of liberty and liberty to get things wrong and liberty to, to do what might be um, in a more sort of, in a society that's more driven by a totalitarian moral framework perceived <laughs> to be wrong. Right. So yeah, I I, I, in, in a recent paper, I, I, I talk about to, totalitarian views of morality versus more restricted views. 
I so see. There's, there's multiple reasons, I think, why we might want room for people to uh, have a sort of heterogeneous lifestyles. That's just a fundamental kind of like liberal idea, but it can come from a consequentialist view. It's not that there's anything really special about liberty, but liberty just produces good consequences. I see. Uh, are you, you said you're an optimist, but given what's been happening in the current events, ah. politics, or, or whether it's in environmental science or, or climate policy, or uh, what do you make of everything that's happening today? <laughs> we, I mean, I'm not specifically- My hot take on everything. <laughs> yes, I mean, it doesn't have to, I mean, probably slightly more, more focused on what we're seeing in the climate arena okay. or, or consumer ethics or something. Yeah, okay, well, so climate, uh, I mean, I'll be really interested to see what happens just in the next few months. So there's a big question uh, whether the, the, the work of the Biden administration is kind of taken up by a Senate trial. Um, but if it's not, I would be surprised if there wasn't, you know, big uh, climate or carbon pricing bill, you know, waiting in the wings there. I'm not an expert on the details here, but um, I know there's, there's some that already had, uh, I've, I've, I've heard that there's some, some significant bills that already even had enough support across the aisle uh, to go through, but the problem was that Trump would never sign them. So, you know, just having the Biden presidency changes the situation a lot. You can talk about gridlock, but there is some bipartisan uh, agreement on carbon pricing for sure. Um, and that, that, will, that will change things. And then that's just, a, that's just the US. Um, other countries, again, I'm not as uh, up to date on them as, as I want to be, but um, yeah, obviously what happens in emerging economies is gonna be crucial to uh, what happens with regard to climate change, whether you know China can continue to sort of have more and more ambitious climate goals and meet them, um, what's happening in India. Um, uh, these, these, these are the, the big questions. And, and so looking ahead, uh, it's a sort of imperative that we focus on uh, cooperation and assistance um, in terms of information sharing, they talk about it. technology transfer is the word in the UNFCCC. Um, and it's not always gonna be, you know, uh, coming from like developed countries to emerging economies. Like uh, China is really, uh, that, that's where the, the real innovation on uh, solar panels came from. So, so sharing the, the technology that's there and will, uh, I think, go a long way to um, making it feasible to have enough of an impact on climate. Uh, maybe we won't meet, maybe we won't meet 1.5 degrees, but uh, we can do uh, pretty well at getting uh, emissions and temperatures down. I see. Um, <laughs> well, Dr. Kingston, I, I haven't figured out a closing 
statement or argument for uh, the aspiring intellectual part, the intellectual part. But oh, okay. Uh, for policy punchline, though, we, we do have a final question that we always ask, which oh, cool. is, what would be your punchline for anything what we've talked about so far for climate, for the philosophy? What would be your punchline at the end? Uh, <laughs> It doesn't have to be catchy. We, we... No, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, just channel those benefits. Don't channel don't try and keep don't try and keep clean hands. Just channel the benefits. I see. Well, in some sense, that is both a pessimistic and optimistic, <laughs> a grim you, view. I'm, I'm pessimistic that any of us can ever stay clean. Yeah. Sure, but we know that the world is a very dirty place. But we can do more. We can we can be we can be positive. We can we today. can make it so that we can make it less dirty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's not about keeping yourself less dirty. I see. I see. Yeah. Roll in the mud. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dr. Kingston. Thank you so much. We would love to have you on the show. Back on the show. It's any time when when you have new oh. breakthroughs in the in your <laughs> findings. Obviously, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thanks so much for for joining me today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your your like depth of, of engagement with the work. It's really. Uh, I haven't really engaged. Well, I I, I would say I, I I just ask questions. I don't actually know anything. I read your articles and I have a bunch of questions that I asked you. But yeah. Uh, anyways, thanks so much and thank you to yeah. our listeners. Uh, you you may follow us on policypunchline.com on iTunes, Spotify. As we're recording this, we're recording this on January fourteenth. We have not thought about actually launching a new aspiring intellectuals podcast or where yeah, we don't know how that will take place, but we obviously have the desire to introduce more fundamental conversations, whether in philosophy or arts or, or science into policy punchline. So uh, definitely follow us closely and we'll try to uh, roll out some more interviews like this with, with philosopher, Dr. Kingston very soon. And uh, by the way, I also write a newsletter these days uh, on tigergao.substack.com. I send daily emails about uh, economic policy and social discourse and politics. Uh, so you may find me there. But anyways, thank you so much for listening and watching today. Uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.